welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. At the time of recording, which is Wednesday, the 15th of September, and in the afternoon, because there's a bit of news this morning, the ASX 200 is still well above its pre-COVID highs, and it's just had 11 consecutive months of positive returns, although we're down a little bit for September, so... Whether we'll make number 12 is a really interesting question. We have over 10 million people in lockdown. They have been for months on one of them, and it's putting incredible strain on economic activity. So this incredible return from the ASX 200 and international markets where there's plenty of other complex stuff going on feels just extraordinary. Today I'm speaking with Evan Lucas, who is the head of strategy at InvestSmart's He's been on before. He explains things so beautifully and brings so much interesting data to it to help talk through exactly how we find ourselves in this situation and how likely it is to continue. Evan, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Gemma. I love coming on this program. It's great to talk to people that are all into this at the moment. You and I love having this sort of banter session, so I'm very much looking forward to it. We sort of chat heaps in advance. So we it's do. really, it's good. It's so good. Evan, you're a, like a good user of Twitter, a really good user of Twitter. And I, I is, mean- Is there a good you, user of Twitter? There is, there is. You are, you're great. Uh, and what I mean is like you post really interesting stuff on markets, put up great charts and make observations about the data that are really like catchy, um, not just catchy and useful. Uh, you recently posted that the last time we had 11 consecutive months of share market gains was in 2006-07. And- for someone's not been around in markets for terribly long, that probably means nothing. But for those of us who were around at the time, that is just incredibly worrying. So can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, we've actually gone past that that stat that you just announced. So the 2006-07, it was 10 consecutive months of gains. That was the last time we had that record. So August was the first time the ASX 200, which is in our world quite actually quite young. It started in March 2000, so it's not actually that old. If you look at the broader Australian index, so what we now refer to as the All Ordinaries, but the original index from way back in the day, you had to go back 75 years to see 11 consecutive months of gains. Now, getting back to your question about 2006, 7 and why, I was just posing the question, it's certainly not, I mean, as they say, when you watch those ads, you know, history is not a you know a good indicator of future incomes. And it's the same point here. But remember, 2006, seven, I remember it just like you do, because I was pretty fresh into the financial world and I cut my teeth on the GFC because that's what the lead in was. There was this incredible run of exuberance, almost this belief that there was no chance of things going wrong. And what we now know in hindsight is that underlying, particularly in the US, was bad borrowing techniques, the collateralization of you know, what they refer to these days as ninja loans, no job, no assets, no income. Um, I've got that around the wrong way, but you can understand where the ninja terminology comes from. All of that was going on. So the subprime mortgage scenario was and had been building in the US pretty much since 96 when there was a change from, from Bill Clinton's administration to, to allow borrowings for the basically the, the very poor policy on paper looked very very clever 
unfortunately in hindsight it ended up ruining a lot of people and therefore the gfc was born so that's that's why i pose that question is is that we've had that run up and and getting to right here and now what is very interesting september historically globally not just here in australia but globally is the worst month of the year we tend to have a negative september and we are at the moment as you alluded to before Gemma. but why I say that is next week, so we are talking about the starting of the 18th, top of my head, there is, for the two weeks preceding that, $29.7 billion Australian dollars being returned to shareholders. Over the entire return of dividends, it's going to be $40.5 billion, which is a record by $10.5 billion from the August 19 season so it's an incredible amount of money so there may actually be a bit of support we've had a pullback and people might just go actually that's where i'm going to put it so september could actually still be positive because it's not that far down and that would mean that since the pandemic's initial reaction in march last year there's only been one negative month in that entire period and that was last september so think about that in another way that isn't that 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 kind of strength that kind of run is stuff that we saw in the roaring 20s into the early 30s in that's you know we all know what happened with history there the great depression i'm not alluding to that that's not what i'm suggesting but it's just fascinating to see market behavior and i know you obviously you talk about investor behavior for me it's the same thing i love behavioral finance and self-attribution and all this kind of stuff and confirmation bias and all that is is in my view at the moment is is pretty strong so i i am very much aware that things are running completely abnormal to what you would normally see in in markets which is that having pullbacks and having corrections are healthy things having markets that just sort of ask the question to itself have i got too far is a healthy thing and and i'm certainly not saying here that i'm getting negative i think the outlook next year in 2022 will be great we will be and i say that deliberately we will be out of lockdowns we will be able to go back to some form of normality and that will be exuberant i just think right now there's some big questions to be asked because i think we've lost perspective of exactly what is going on yeah it's so interesting uh for anyone who's relatively young i'll make a comment or who had no interest in markets back in 2006-07 there would be plenty of people listening who are in that category uh the big short is like a cool fun movie about some of the things that happened in the GFC or if you want to watch a documentary there's heaps of them out there one is an inside job which has got Matt Damon as the commentator obviously you have to be interested in this stuff (laughs) I've watched all of them I find them really interesting it was quite weird like during the GFC we were there like we were watching it happen and you still were pretty clueless about what was happening a lot of the time it sort of come to light later on there are a lot of things where you're like I had no idea that even existed or what was happening uh so it's quite interesting famous last words in investing so you can say yeah and it's also the interconnectivity that really started to to hit home so even when you look back at the 87 flash crash and and what was going on with the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s early 2000s connectivity was there but not at the same level that we saw in 2007, eight, nine. So, you know, the US would blow up, we'd wake up and do the same thing. It was also just sitting there watching and talking to clients and and dealing with clients that were literally watching their life savings evaporate is basically the word to use. It's also unfortunately still caused, and the word is scarring in people's psyche, in their investment behaviors and and the way things have, have worked. So the amount of money that's sat on the sidelines since 2007, 8, 9 
he's been astounding and it, it has cracked up a couple of times but we are, we are not talking about the levels of investment that were pre GFC coming back in the post world even though the rally and the gains that we've had since the GFC have dwarfed it absolutely categorically dwarfed what's happened it's been the most unloved bear market of, uh, sorry bull market of all time the rally all the way up to this time last year sorry to march last year and, and even then if you if you take COVID out the the bull market was astounding in terms of how much value it's added but that is the difference is that the the gfc created scarring and scarring that unfortunately i don't think a lot of people will forget anytime soon yeah, you're so right about that. I find that really interesting. Um, and I attribute it to just how long it took mm. and how deep it got. I don't, yep. again, that may be just, just purely perspective, you know, my personal perspective. It was 18 months from peak to trough yep. at GFC, you know, from sort of September 2007 to March 2009. Year and a half is a long, long time. And it felt like it never ended. And we're, we're doing that now. Aren't <laughs> we? I mean, it's like COVID feels like it's never ending. It will end. <laughs> It will, it will end. It just feels like it just won't. And the GFC was that same thing. You would wake up, go to work, and you go, is today that day that we lose another 5% or today that day we lost another 7% on the market broadly? Uh, and it, it felt like that for, as you said, forever. It just never, never. And, and, you know, those that held so long, and there was a lot of them that really were positive through it, trying to hold on, that finally just went, I just can't. Yeah. And they, they would. They were the ones that I was so upset for because they were the ones that truly still believed, and they left in that very tail end, that last little bit, and they're the ones that missed out the most. Um, and there, there are still people in my head that I, I can sort of see them in, in, when I recollect them as they were the ones that still believed, and they were the ones that got burnt the worst because they did leave right at the end, and then it took off. And some of them I know haven't ever come back, and I find that really, really hard to take sometimes because I love what we, you and I do, and, and I think markets have a very, very strong play in your wealth, absolutely no doubt about it, even with the GFC and what's gone on with COVID and 2002 crash, the Asian financial crisis, the China hard landing story, the Euro crisis. God, I can list them all. <laughs> if you can look through all of those things and then talk about the ASX 200 from March 2000 to where we are now, the, the gain in the ASX over that period of time on a total returns basis is well over 600%. So that's the other thing you got to remember with this is, is time is the healer of everything. Yes, unless you happen to be the person who got out in March 2009 and there were plenty. But it's also worth noting if you, know, if you bought in in September 2007, you know, it took you what better part of 13 years to make your money back. True, like, but at the same time. If you time, bought at the peak, I mean, you got great dividends through that uh, period and all yeah, of that so that's stuff, right? And, I, and I'm going to come over you on the top of that because that is one of my favourite charts that I've put out there. And it is, getting back to your Twitter question, it is something I put out there a lot. If you were the most unlucky investor in the world <laughs> and you bought on the 1st of November 2007, so that is the absolute peak that we had before the GFC started. If you bought on that day and did nothing else but reinvested your dividends, you would have actually broken even in September 2013. Rather than having to wait the 13 years it took for the capital to get back to, okay, your technology, I think it's 68.73 was the top because obviously it's new now. It's well up and above that. But I'm pretty sure, top of my head, it was 68.73 on a capital basis of the ASX to break even to the November 1st, 2007 top. 
But if you had have reinvested and done total returns, by the time it broke even on a capital basis in 2019, you were 73% up. So that's what the, the beauty of compounding, that is the beauty of total returns, is that if you just kept reinvesting your dividends on the way down from November 2007 all the way to the bottom of March 1st, 2009, and then kept reinvesting as the market kept going up and up and up and up and up all the way through to that date that it was in 2019, you are 72% up. That I know because that is a chart I put out all the time to talk about those that are the un, inverted commas unlucky investor. You're unlucky if you make your strategy of just continuing to draw on it rather than actually adding to it because compounding is, is a mathematical principle that works no matter what's going on. That's such a cool example. Um, follow Evan Twitter. It's really good. Um, it's <laughs> full of interesting data facts. It's, um, I, you know, you can tell by listening to this that we were both traumatized by the GFC. Yes. It's um, anyone who was there was traumatized by it, even if you made money out of it, and plenty of people did. It was, uh, it was an experience. I started just after the tech wreck, and mm. there were people around me who were traumatized, but I'd not been participating, and so I didn't get that kind of acute pain, and I didn't see it or feel it in my clients until quite a bit later. But your point about all of the other crises and the interconnectivity and so on was really interesting because the tech wreck was very clearly about overvaluation, people paying too much for stuff. Yep. And it seemed quite obvious even at the time, let alone in retrospect. So it was different to the GFC where even though we had had this incredible run of, of performance prior to it, and for a couple of years it wasn't just that one year of sort of consecutive gains, it didn't feel heady you know what you weren't paying a hundred times for things no famous, but they were famous last they're, they're famous you're right but that's famous last words at the same time isn't it <laughs> i was about to say like the famous last words of investing always start with this time it's different right it's always <laughs> this time it's, it's different this time there's obvious differences now to the pre-gfc periods although i have to say as person who studied economics it doesn't feel better it doesn't feel like our circumstances are much better now what are your thoughts on that are they different what's different so that question probably needs to be broken up into several different ways so markets are they different no and that's my answer uh, and the reason i say it so bluntly and shortly is all of those events i listed before uh, show that there will be event risk in the future whatever that is a GFC, a Euro crisis, blah, 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 COVID, COVID times two, touch wood doesn't happen, but you know what I mean. They will happen for sure. The markets will react as they always do. There will be a very sharp, short or you know, medium reaction like we saw with the GFC, but whatever happens, it will happen. So is this time different? No, it's not. Why that question gets raised this time rather than anything else is that this is a health crisis rather than an economic one. We are having government policy impinge on our daily lives. And if we actually took it away and look at, you know, basically in January last year, things were sort of okay. They weren't growing greatly, but they were going okay. And then this happened and it's actually sort of woken us up in some respects. Some would argue it's actually created a bit of the word that markets love is animal spirits. And we've seen that when we're out of lockdown, and that's why I'm still relatively optimistic in 2022, is, is that we we do start to, inverted commas, live life quite hard, which is a really good thing because you know, we've had life taken away from us for the last almost two years. But is it different? No, it's not. And, and I think that needs to be the base 
answer to all of it is is markets will finally price this in. You will also have a scenario where the emergency settings that we're in, which feel like good times to some extent, will have to come out. I mean, there is clear suggestions today in the economics that what's going on at the moment with the programs in New South Wales and Victoria that are not job keeper anymore, but they're obviously business support packages and some form of job seeker times two going on, that they're actually above the wages that some people were getting. So we're actually getting positive wage pressure. So all of that stuff will probably unwind and therefore there will be a downtime. There will be a period where there is a little bit of, of struggle again, economically, not health-wise, but economically there'll be that comes in. So then you boil it down and you take the, the, the name away from it, COVID and living with COVID or all those kind of terms. And you just look at it as a normal theoretical event that we've seen over the many, 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 many years markets and economics and people's behaviors are relatively similar to what we've seen in the past. And, and that's, that's why it isn't different this time. It's just uh, an experience that has similarities and therefore they will have similar reactions. And I know that's weird, but again, if you actually boil it down, you look at the great depression, you look at the Asian financial crisis, you look at the oil crisis, you look at this 87 flash crash, you look at the, you know, the subprime mortgage problem and, and the GSC in 2007, they're all different to some extent, but they all have the same underlying fundamentals that make them and and, under, and know that there is no difference this time around. That's not the most positive thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I know. But well, yeah, so what I'm trying to say is the other thing, the, 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 let's make that from the positive, is that every time we've had those events, look at the recovery. Yeah. Look at where we are now. So the, the other part of your question really sickly was, is living standards better? Absolutely it is. Yeah. Like you look at your living standards, even 10 years ago, it's hard to think about it, but it's as simple as pulling your iPhone out of your pocket, right? The ability to access the internet, the, you know, do FaceTiming or some form of screen calling over your mobile phone didn't exist even five years ago because the internet stability wasn't strong enough or your wavelength wasn't strong enough to do that. That's an improvement in life expanded in, you know, in your, you know, your life. If you look at your ability to go to wherever you want to go, not including what's going on with COVID, it's the increase of the ability to fly anywhere for, for cheaper prices has also come about. All of those living standards are better if you look at what has happened to what was 1999, they are chalk and cheese. And I know some people will argue with me with that, but if you actually genuinely look at it, there is no doubt that our living standards have continued to increase. The argument that comes back from the pessimist is that how can it continue to increase? Does our children's living standards get worse? No, they'll be different. That's the answer. They will be different. And what you therefore deem as better or worse can depend on your point of view. Owning a house is clearly an example that a lot of people allude to right now is that they are housing affordability is a problem. But if you look at the, the living standards, they will be different. And the majority of it will probably be better because what we have learned from right now is that we will clearly not let slip a pandemic like this again from a health perspective. And our kids' health in the future, I personally believe, will be even better again than ours, which I thought was pretty good until this came around, which is that they will be prepared for a pandemic. They will be prepared for the for immunizations. They will be prepared for the ICU requirements and the health requirements that come with that. So I, I think that their, their, their living standards will be different and, and in my view, will be better. 
That's super interesting because one of the biggest questions obviously at the moment is when do we get back to normal? And for people in lockdown, it's particularly acute. But even for people who aren't, you know, my parents are in Queensland and they have seen their grandchildren once in two years. And, you, you know, as you say, technology is a wonderful thing. They can see each other on FaceTime all the time. And we have uh, a lot of ways to communicate that are fantastic and we can work from home, which is amazing. Wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago mm, for exactly. a lot of people. Uh Another living, standard, another living standard improvement. Think about it. Yeah, but all of us want to get back to some kind of normal, right? We want to get back to being able to send our kids to school and see our friends and all that kind of stuff. You've recently looked at what's going on in the US where they've had a vaccination rollout, certainly much more efficient than ours, but didn't reach perhaps what you'd hope to reach, <laughs> but hopefully has some lessons for us. What do you reckon? Yeah, I... So the US rollout has been interesting and I'm not going to comment on the politics of the rollout because the US and Europe to some extent and the UK were in different positions uh, to, to where Australia was. So they had emergency rollouts. Their rollout, if you're actually really honest, was really poor. So they've only actually got about 56% of their entire population fully vaxxed. And that's in a population of 380 million people is probably too low. Sorry, does that include children? Because that's one of the things that's tricky slash difficult here in that we're excluding the under-18s at the moment from our numbers. So it looks amazing, but then you go actually, when you add them in, it's a smaller proportion. Uh, Is it under-18s or under-16s? I think it's under-16s for Australia. Yeah, fair uh, enough. But it's the same problem over in the US. So they they have started vaccinating their their 12 to 15-year-olds and all of that. The thing, well, the signs out of the US are that they've had another wave. The Delta wave has certainly hit the August data and you can see all that. So that's the non-farm payrolls of 235,000 was a significant drop from what we were seeing, which was still incredible 235,000 jobs created compared to what we were seeing the months before that, which was about 750 to 800,000 jobs per month. It's mind blowing when you think about how big that is. What we also saw is that activity fell away We saw manufacturing falling away, but I would highlight that's not necessarily the US's fault. Supply issues are clearly out there, but what the the clear takeout from the US is they have not only got through that Delta surge, but they're now starting to really motor on into September. You're seeing activity pick up. If you look at things like shelter and rent PMIs they're doing very strongly and their CPIs are doing very strongly if you look at services growth and services PMIs they're really starting to pick up in September their overall economy and their economic opening is is living with COVID I think that's that is the buzz term I can use they are not only living with COVID but they're they're sort of adverted commas excelling at it and are getting through it with very low vaccination rates compared to what Australia is targeting. So that's the other thing to take out here is that they are and have lower vaccination rates. Yes, straight away, I can hear the the comments back is, but look at their hospitalizations, look at their death rate. Yep, completely agree. They are still coping though. And that's the the thing to sort of probably say to that is that this is the, the, the horrible, horrible discussion that has to happen is, at what point does life continue with hospitalizations and deaths? And that's something that Australia has not had to fully face, except for unfortunately for Victoria. 
And that's where we possibly are at now. And that's why this debate is happening. And I get when you start talking about people's health and people about people's, you know, mortality, that always creates a response that can be very, very true and very much, you know, almost binary that, you know, somebody's life is probably more valuable than the economy. And I get that. Um, but there will have to come a point and the US is showing us that you living with it also is part of that, that principle. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, there was... Uh, NAB does business surveys and uh, business confidence, but also business conditions, which can be quite different things, which I find really interesting. So people might have very low confidence, but their conditions are great or vice versa. And both are picking up at the moment, despite the lockdowns, because there's a bit of hope that we're going to come out of this. And that's quite, quite exciting to see. (laughs) It certainly is. Uh, Look, And it will happen. And we've seen it like, so, taking out what's happening right now, if you look from the end of the second lockdown in Victoria all the way through to the second or third lockdown in New South Wales, well, let's call it the second lockdown because it's a full lockdown rather than what we saw with some sort of strategic LGA movements that New South Wales had. The positivity and the hiring, spending, consumption was incredible. There's no doubt about that. There's no other way to put it. That, that before the New South Wales lockdown in particular, the economy was absolutely flying. There's there's no other way to, to put it like that. And, and you know, even the most pessimistic agree that the into June, things were really good. And, and that's despite lockdowns and periodic lockdowns and all this kind of stuff. We were awoken, I think is the right word, to to actually getting on with things and living. And I think that's the thing that, you know, that that conservative approach that we sometimes don't realise that Australians have. We, we are quite conservative compared to the US. There's no doubt about that. And we're even conservative compared to Europe that we sort of woke up from that and, and, and got on with things and it was really driving things ahead. So that's why I am positive next year is because I know looking at the behaviour that we saw pre-current lockdowns that once this lockdown's finish, the behaviour will probably return even more so. The other advantage is seasonality. Summer just does that to people. So we've got all of those things to look forward to. Yeah, you were talking about exuberance and animal spirits referring to the market, but I think it's going to also just apply to people's behaviour, just getting outside and wanting to do nice things and see people again. It'd be lovely. Yep. Uh, US markets are at record highs. I'm kind of moving way a little bit from the economic side, but looking at markets, I mean, U.S. markets are unbelievable. You talked about the ASX 200 coming back from the GFC. The U.S. markets were up 400% in 10 years, like just incredible. They had a little bit of recent weakness, but they've massively outperformed the ASX 200 over the last decade and a half. And the primary reason for that is they're dominated by these tech firms that have been just extraordinary global powerhouses. And they've also been significant beneficiaries of some of the challenges presented by COVID. So other businesses that were significantly challenged by COVID and lockdowns and so on, the big tech giants got even bigger, right? They were doing very nicely. Everyone was on Facebook even more. Uh, Do you see bigger challenges for the Australian market ahead because we don't have that kind of hyper-resilient uh, I guess tech business so much in Australia and we're much more dependent on sort of typical services and goods. Yes, and we've always been different. So the tech in you know the tech revolution 
has been coming for actually almost 40 years. So if you think about it, you go back to 1980 when your IBMs were very much around, but, you know, Apple was just coming about and it took it 30 years to get to where it was and then exploded. Um, The other thing to remember about the US markets, and as I said before, with with investor behavior in the US, the US are much more assertive in their thinking. They are much, much more willing to to, to, to risk and to put money into markets. They're much more willing to, to do venture capital and things like that, which supports the development of small and medium-sized enterprises very, very quickly, which then becomes mega enterprises. They also just have the population. I mean, 380 million people compared to we are 25 allows that. So there's all sorts of demographics and investor behaviors that can get there. Getting back to your question though about Australia is we'll just be different. We still have and do bat quite well above our weight. We will always be a mining country. There's no doubt about that. And that's probably where my next answer comes from is that there has been enough rumblings about what Australia could be. And I say that unfortunately with a little bit of hesitancy because we tend to sometimes, particularly from government policy, sort of, shirk this but we have the ability to be the energy provider of the future and why i say that and i'm not saying this from a personal point of view i'm saying that from people that actually matter that we have a huge continent the sixth largest continent on the planet so we have a lot of space we also have an incredible amount of resources under the ground which we know and we're very good at digging it up The advantage that we also have is that the new world commodities are only going to get better for us. The amount of cobalt, the amount of nickel that we have is incredible. Rare earths, we can also overtake China and also Russia with the amount that we have here. Why I highlight that is do not underestimate that renewable energy is going to be the future. Some people think that's not true. Some people do. Coal will phase out. Oil, petroleum will phase out. It will take half a century. I don't deny that. But why I highlight this is the newer technologies have the ability to be not only developed here, but actually mined here. So mining cobalt, mining nickel, mining copper, mining these kinds of things that then can be handed to a Tesla, for example, to make batteries is one part of it. But the other part of it is actually then cultivating it. And the word cultivating is what they now use in the industry. The ability to actually have green hydrogen, this is something that Andrew Forrest is very, very strong on, but the Japanese are incredible at getting this done and they're getting very, very close to doing it, of actually developing green hydrogen that can be made and stored out in the desert. And then you have a a Tesla who has a battery storage system out there that can then be exported to the world. This is what they're now talking about. So not only do we actually export the minerals required to make the batteries, we could then make the energy and sell the energy to the world. So that is that is where it comes from. Now, whether that means those companies end up on the ASX is a different story, but it is certainly the thought process going forward. And it means, you know, solar is part of that, wind is part of that to some extent, but we've seen then probably not as great as baseload power. So that is where you do also have things like hydrogen energy coming into it, where there is also suggestion with what possibly is going on right now with uranium. Um, I'm certainly not a, a proponent of, of nuclear energy, but what I'm saying is that there is certainly testing in the market that shows that people are thinking about the future. And by future, I do mean 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now and what Australia will look like as part of that. Oh, I think it's so interesting you've gone there. Uh, it's amazing to me how many guests come on this podcast and talk about these topics as what is 
just percolating away yeah. as as an investment thesis, as a principle that they that they want to get behind. And it's not something I hear a lot about from retail investors, but it absolutely seems to be at the strategist institutional level. Yeah, absolutely. They're all over this. So the catch, that, and I know what you're basically saying from the retail investor, and I can, again, hear you guys coming back to this, where do I do that? Like yeah. where, who is it that I can get into? At the moment, what I will say, I'm not going to mention them, but they are micro cap companies. They're, you know, they're in their infancy, they're in their seeding process. There are some behemoths out there and they're overseas and, and Tesla's somewhat of an, an example of that. But unfortunately, right this second, there isn't one or two or three tier ones you can really point to. What I do know though, is that one of these, there's about three, 400 of them will become something. Um, I just can't tell you which one. And I, and I, <laughs> I, I know it's coming because there is just too much money from the institutional side and from big, big government side for it not to happen. Um, and that's, that's what I know. So it's just now about being nimble and ready for when that actually comes about. Yeah. I, I feel you very much on this topic. I think it's so interesting and it just keeps coming up over and over again. I had a, uh, I had a conversation with, NABs now former, unfortunately, head of resources uh, research or commodities research, actually, and uh, and he, like his short term bullish position was coal, gas, and uh, oil. Mm-hmm. Well, he was pretty bearish on iron ore, so he was well ahead of his. Uh, <laughs> didn't have the timing exactly right, but he was yeah. there close. But he was so bullish on all the other stuff for exactly the reasons you outlined. He's like, you've got to be ready for the switch because it's coming. And we don't know exactly when, but it's coming. Yep. You have to be and ready again, for it. That's the point, getting back to it. Time always heals everything. So if you make the mistake early, you've got the time. It will happen. It's just a question of when. So you've raised the fact that there's three or 400 perhaps highly specky things that may well be massive beneficiaries of this. And it it leads so nicely into my next question, which is that there is a fairly sizable disconnect between the market and the economy very often in history, right? The economy mm-hmm. can be going beautifully and the market's really dull or the market's looking incredible, but the economy's not looking too flash. House prices are a great example at the moment. Lots and lots of people out of work and on government support and so on, but house prices, you know, increasing by 20%. It's extraordinary. Yep. Do you feel that they're relatively well matched at the moment or do you think this is becoming a bit of an issue? So I'm one of those people that sort of says that the economy is not the market and vice versa. Uh, and although like you, I'm trained in economics and I talk about economics all the time, the economics is just the data points and the base to understand what's happening. Because when we look at markets, particularly equities, you've got to remember that an equity market is a collection of companies and companies are their own microstructure and their own microcosm. They're also run by people who are trying to improve it no matter what. So, you know, the board, of any listed company and the CEO and CFO, et cetera, they, their job is to improve the company. That, that is basically what they're there to do, which means that there's innovation and thought and structure that, that is different to what's necessarily going on in the broader economy. That doesn't mean they're not interlinked. I completely understand that, but that, that's my first answer to that point. So the economy does mean that, so there are parts of markets that are definitely affected more than others by it. So consumption, so discretionary spending companies have that, as part of their, their, their problem is we've seen that when you do get government support, spending happens. And if you're a discretionary, you're going to take full advantage of that. 
Whereas if you're an industrial firm that works in mining or structural infrastructure, it's pretty negligible either side. The only thing I would argue, for, and I know some people can I can say, say this is structural, you know, structural engineering and, and structural infrastructure is also something that tends to benefit in downward uh, economic times because we get stimulus and governments love to do that by building roads or building bridges or train lines or blah blah blah. So they do that effort, and I get that point. But in the main, then they're not as exposed to the economy. So they are matched in their own ways. I think the answer at the moment is that the economy no matter what the data is telling us, is in recession. That's clear because of lockdowns in New South Wales and Victoria. What happens in the fourth quarter will be interesting because my personal point of view is that I think South Australia and Queensland in particular are prime for COVID outbreaks, considering how porous their borders are with New South Wales and Victoria, despite them trying to close them down, and it will get in there. It's a question of whether or not they're ready for it. Uh, if they're not ready for it and it gets early, Q4 will be will be difficult. But my baseline is that I'm trying not to look at the here and now. I'm trying to look in 12 months time. And there is certainly better times ahead looking forward over those 12 months period. I believe January, February, March will be really interesting periods as we do get out of lockdowns. The population gets to a point of understanding how to live with COVID. The population starts doing its thing and therefore the economy will, will start ticking along. Um, to the markets on the other side, the amount of stimulus isn't going away anytime soon. So that's the interconnection with the economy. But I also think firms have become very, very strategic and have become very innovative to live with COVID as well. And, and therefore they're, they're actually making better decisions and their results are telling us that. It's nice to, uh, to look out that far ahead and see things yeah. getting back to normal and getting positive again. It's uh, you kind of have to keep your turn up with the stuff, don't you? You do. Uh, so today there was news that the OECD has recommended a review of the Reserve Bank of Australia and I was dying to ask you about it, but I think we're going to be out of time because that is just a whole topic on its own. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping you'll cover it with me as a separate topic because it's super interesting for people like you and I who are into that kind of thing. Yes, But you is. made the point when we were chatting offline that the long-term implications could be extraordinary. The last time there was a review, it revolutionised the Australian economy. It did. So very quickly, the last time we did this was 40 years ago. And when we did do that, we put in deregulation around the financial system. We deregulated uh, labor laws and other laws. And we also floated the currency off the back of it. Now, you and I understand what that means. But for those of you that are listening on, the ability to actually float the currency meant that we could become strategically more competitive with exports. It meant business could grow. The ability to then start lending was was reduced and, and easier and businesses grew. You and I could buy a house much easier. It also allowed the freer flow of capital and the freer flow of, of, of goods and services. So I'm not saying this time around it's it's you know gonna do that kind of things because most of those real structural economic imperatives have happened. And most of what they're suggesting is actually coming at the fiscal side. So by fiscal, we mean government spending and government policy. But the RBA certainly needs to, to be reviewed. Uh, I think that's a fair point. I think they need to be reviewed around how they use their lever, which is you know interest rates and, and what needs to be done to meet interest rate movements, um, and also around other policies that they could have at their disposal. So I think it'll be a positive thing when it does happen. And Josh Frydenberg hinted that it could happen after the federal election, which looks like in March next year. 
Yeah, for those of us who are massive nerds, it'll be super interesting. And uh, with any luck, we'll turn everyone listening into massive nerds at the end of it because there uh, there could be some incredible implications long term. Evan, you guys at InvestSmart produce just fantastic content, uh, so many interesting articles and podcasts and various other things. If people want to find out more, where should they go? Just head to investmart.com.au. Uh, that'll put you there because not only is it InvestMart, but uh, under the InvestMart umbrella is also the Eureka Report, which is headed by Alan Kohler, and the Intelligent Investor, which is headed headed by our Intelligent Investor crew from John Anderson down. Um, but yeah, just log on there and you'll be able to find everything we do. Uh, we do all range of a manner of things. It's, uh, there's so much great research on there and Alan's amazing, obviously. The, uh, the father... Of <laughs> the, fa- the father of this stuff, yes. The, yeah, yeah, he's the father of this stuff, right? It's really quite the, the funny talking to me. stuff, the 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 yeah, the podcast, the the media of of finance. That's, that's yeah. what Alan People is, I is know the godfather of it. Yeah, not the faintest interest. Love watching him on yep. the news, and they'll go and find it on YouTube after the fact and stuff. Is amazing. The chart of the day. Yeah, and, and that's. That's you know the the beauty of having him there is is learning from him. So at the moment he's actually been away. So it's been I've actually been lucky enough to step into his very very large shoes and, and sort of doing some of his things. So it's fascinating to see the people that he talks to and listen to the people he talks to. The CEO interviews he has they are they are incredible to be listened to, but also to, at the moment to be a part of. So it's been very very lucky for me. Evan Lucas from Investmart, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We receive fantastic feedback from you guys. We really love getting your questions and suggestions for topics and things you want to hear about. Please get in touch with us anytime, yourwealth at nav.com.au. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth.com at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.